This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast, Daphna. Friday, how are you? Good. We made it. We made it. Good job, everybody. <laughs> um, all right. This is the last day of infectious disease and immunology. Um, this has been a very high yield week. I mm-hmm. feel like everything we've talked about is very much testable. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- what are we doing next week? Um, next week is nutrition. Oh, boy. The big block. Uh huh. I have to get myself prepared. Fine. Okay, so um, who's going? F- Am I asking you the first question? No, today? I'll go first. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay, this is question 49. Which of the following statements about immunoglobulin levels in neonates is false? A, maternal IgG is not usually detectable in an infant's bloodstream at four months of age. B, maternal IgG is transported across the placenta to the fetus by endocytosis. C, neonatal IgA levels reach approximately 20% of adult levels by one year. D, neonatal IgM levels reach approximately 75% of adult levels by one year. E, peak maternal IgG levels in neonatal blood occur at approximately 40 weeks. Okay. Um, Yeah, this is a question where I did not bother too much with some of these other answer choices because... They could be quite confusing. Choice A to me was very straightforward. Um, mm-hmm. Maternal IgG is not usually detectable in an infant's bloodstream at four months of age. If you remember, we spoke about that early on in the week where we said that the maternal IgGs really start dropping off soon after birth. And they're almost gone by half at around two months. And they are almost undetectable at around nine months. And we spoke about that because we said that This precipitous drop coincides with the immunization uh, at two months of age. So I knew that for them to be um, not detectable at four months was was no was too harsh of a Mm -hmm. of a statement. So that was definitely false. Um, And then the others, I I looked briefly at them. Maternal IgG transported across the placenta. That was that was something I I know of. Um, Neonatal IgA levels reaching approximately twenty percent of adult level by one year of age. Um, that is true. I mean, I know that the curve for IgA is like straight up. Uh, I didn't, to be honest with you, I wasn't 100% sure whether it was 20% or a different number, um, but it definitely did not seem as as awfully wrong as A. Uh, neonatal IgM reaching 75%, similar thing. IgM and IgA have almost like, if you go on that graph that uh, Brodsky and Martin have in their book, like IgA and IgM have this upslope and they're almost parallel to each other. Mm. And IgM is above IgA, so that that did not really surprise me either. And then peak maternal IgG levels in neonatal blood occur at approximately 40 weeks of gestation. That's true. Like if you remember that curve, it peaks at the time of birth. And then as soon as the baby is born, it should go down. And since birth at term is around at 40 weeks, that made sense. So my answer was A, um, maternal IgG not usually detectable in the blood at four months of age. That is wrong. Yeah, you you are correct. So so. So just like you said, um, 
the the IgG levels, so peak maternal IgG levels coming across to to baby, um, it's I mean it's really looks like a standard uh, deviation curve. Like it yeah, really like peaks bell, at like forty weeks, curve, right? Yeah. A bell curve um, peaks at forty weeks um, and then starts dropping very precipitously. Um, but we know that um, it can stay, um, like you said, in the bloodstream till about six to nine months. Um, and after nine months, that's when it's not detectable. So we would still see it at four months of age. And thank you for the reminder that um, it's about 50% about two months. And that's why babies should stay on a normal vaccine schedule of getting their first round of vaccine at two months of age. And when we think about immunoglobulins, so answer B, it's one of those big, big um, things to move. So um, it is transported by endocytosis. And then I think um, C and D could be a little bit confusing, but it's important to remember that fetuses actually don't make IgA um, and they make very small amounts of IgM during gestation. So both of those start out pretty low. And then neonatal IgA and neonatal IgM levels, um, like you said, they increase over that first year, um, but IgA levels at a much um, lower level than IgM levels. The rate is almost similar, um, but neonatal IgA levels reach approximately 20% of adult levels by one year, and IgM levels reach approximately 75% of adult levels by one year of age. And something that helps me remember that is actually IgA is one of the major um, uh, immunoglobulins in breast milk. Um, and so that's why it's so great that we have this system for babies to get this maternal IgA through breast mm-hmm. milk, um, since they have, uh, so much, um, smaller amounts of IgA in that first year. I remember that, uh, IgG is the one that goes, that that's being passed from the mother to the baby transplacentally because the, mm-hmm. the, the letter G, the capital G looks like a baby in a fetal position, you know, like how they, okay. they draw us. Yeah. So like, like the round, the rounded back and stuff like, I don't know, yeah. it's very primitive. Or like a pregnant mama. <laughs> or a pregnant mother. That's absolutely, yeah. that's absolutely right. If you ever struggle to remember that piece of information. Yeah. And I remember that the predominant ones in breast milk are um, IgG and IgA. So gaga, like something that babies uh, say, but that IgA is the number one and it is pointy. <laughs> so it would right. either look like a bottle or a, you know, nipple, just say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Your okay. turn. Question 79. Yes. Question 79. Daphne, two week old neonate is brought to your attention. Two week old. Um, because mm-hmm. his umbilical cord is still attached and the area around the cord is red. Mm. The pregnancy had been uncomplicated. The infant was born at term by spontaneous vaginal delivery. The infant's parents recently immigrated to the U.S. and are co-sanguinous. This mm. is their first child. After opening, after obtaining a complete blood cell count and a blood culture in the infant, you start antibiotic therapy. The CBC returns with marked neutrophilia, what is the most likely pathogenesis of this infant's disease? Choice A, B cell deficiency. Choice B, combined severe immune deficiency. Choice C, mutation in the beta 2 integrin gene leading to neutrophil dysfunction. Choice D, T cell deficiency. Or E, none of the above. 
Okay. So this baby has um, delayed umbilical cord separation, um, which makes me think it's leukocyte adhesion deficiency. Mm-hmm. And I know that the integrins help with um, the movement of uh, leukocytes. So I'm going to go with D. Is it answer D? <laughs> I think so. It's C. Uh, mutation in the beta 2 integrin gene. That's right. Yeah, D was T cell. Yeah, you, you, you are correct. So um, we're talking again about leukocyte adhesion deficiency. The reason I wanted to talk about it is because I wanted to spend some time talking about delayed cord separation. It's something that tends to come up a lot. So mm-hmm. let's go over some pearls when it comes to the umbilical cord. What is the most common factor influencing cord separation? It's cord care. So if there's any delays, the most likely reason is inappropriate cord care. Um, that, that's something that's testable. A dried cord should fall off within about seven days. Um, so that's so uh, a cord that hasn't separated in three to four days, that's okay. Um, now, you remember that when we do our umbilical lines and, and, and we do clean uh, the stump, the umbilical stump, we do have to wipe off everything afterwards because a cord treated with 70% alcohol or triple dye can fall off as late as three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and the management is just to leave the cord to air out. Um, and then, um, and so that, that should take care of it. Now, the hemonc disease that is associated with delayed cord separation is leukocyte adhesion deficiency. The gene that is responsible for leukocyte adhesion deficiency is ITGB2, mutation in the beta-2 integrin gene. That's the ITGB2. And the presentation is an elevated white blood cell count mm-hmm. and um, neutrophilia. Okay, so that's something that we should, we should remember. Now, if the baby has a pathological reason for delayed core separation, we said leukocyte adhesion deficiency is number one. Number two would be anomphalitis. And number three would be uracal anomalies. So going back um, to, this, uh, to this question, the baby does have a delayed cord separation. They try to hint at the fact that uh, there's no mention of any inappropriate cord care, but they do mention that mm-hmm. the parents are somehow related. <clears throat> um, and so that should make you think of leukocyte adhesion deficiency, which is an autosomal recessive disease. The fact that they're consanguineous really increases the the possibility of this baby being homozygous uh, for that mutation. Uh, As you've said before on the show, it's related to uh, an adhesion defect of the neutrophils. um, And um, basically, the beta-2 integrin are adhesion molecules that are essential for the normal uh, interaction between the endothelium and the leukocyte. So when that's absent the neutrophils are unable to adhere to the endothelium. And so that's that's what is at the basis of leukocyte adhesion deficiency. Um, the, um, the other thing that's very characteristic of babies with or of children with leukocyte adhesion deficiency is the absence of pus during infection. They really mm-hmm. can't, right? Because the, the neutrophils can't adhere, you cannot have that immune reaction process happening. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the, the pearls I wanted to go over. Yeah, I think that's such an important piece. So there's a normal amount of neutrophils. They're just stuck in the circulation because they can't adhere to the wall. They can't get out of the circulation. So they can't get to where they need to go. But they they work 
fine otherwise if they could make the move and that there's a normal amount or in some babies in in a normally increased amount in the in the face of infection. Can I give just you a ski ski analogy? Sure. Since I just came back from skiing. It's like if you're on the ski lift and when it's time for you to get off, you don't get off. That's so like, right. You're you're passing by and you're like and you're just moving you're moving <laughs> yeah. right past. These That's are right. these neutrophils who are just passing by the infection sign. They're like, wait, 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 right. wait, and just can't stop. <laughs> I was supposed to get off there. Yeah. <laughs> and right. there's no and there's no operator to stop the lift to let you get off. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So Which happened the, to my daughter, the by the way. Lift, the ski so lift that, just gets full of people, right? So. Yep. Just keeps passing the uh, the stop by. Yep. Um, it's happened okay. to me before, so I can understand. <laughs> happens to the best of us. Okay. We're going to do question 59. We're okay. all over today, but we're going to do question 59. What is the most common form of immune dysfunction found in patients with chromosome 22Q11.2 deletion? Is it A, graft-versus-host disease, B, um, oligoclonal peripheral T-cell proliferation, C, severe immunoglobulin deficiency, D, T-cell hypoplasia and mild to moderate peripheral lymphopenia, or E, thymic aplasia and severe T-cell lymphopenia? This is a oh hard boy. question. You know, I get to pick the questions, and so sometimes you get the harder questions. (laughs) That's okay. So um, the most common form of immune dysfunction find in 22Q11 deletions. Um, So I know that in 22Q11 deletion, right, there's um, there's some issue with the thymus. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, thymus hypoplasia, which is the place where T cells like to uh, mature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when when I'm thinking about this, there's there's a few choices that jump up um, that jump out at me. Number one, uh, choice B says oligoclonal peripheral T cell proliferation. Choice D says T cell hypoplasia and mild to moderate peripheral lymphopenia. And choice E says thymic aplasia and severe T cell lymphopenia. Um, I'm hesitating between D and E, um, and somehow I know that thymus hypoplasia means that there's a lower amount of circulating T cells, but I'm not sure that it's as severe as what they. I think if I remember correctly, it's not severe T cell hypoplasia. It's uh, it's 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 not severe T cell lymphopenia. It's it's moderate. Uh, or mild to moderate. I think it's not as bad as it says in E, so I'm going to go with D. T-cell hypoplasia and mild to moderate peripheral lymphopenia. Well, that was so good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so so the reason this question is tricky because um, a, a, a patient with 22Q11.2 deletion or, or, or DeGeorge syndrome could actually have some of these presentations. Um, and 75% of patients with 22Q11.2 deletion have immune system problems. So it's a real um, serious component of the, the pathology. Um, but like you said, the, the Im- immunological defect is thought to arise from thymic hypoplasia. And for most babies with 22Q11, it manifests most commonly as really a mild to moderate peripheral lymphopenia. Um, it, 
specifically in CD3 cells. Um, but um, it's that T-cell hypoplasia um, and kind of a mild to moderate phenotype versus what would be seen in, in true thymic aplasia. Mm-hmm. Um, we There are some babies with 22Q11 who do have thymic, thymic aplasia, and those babies um, have extreme lymphopenia and a very high risk of viral infections. Um, so it can be seen, it's just not the most common. And then when it talks about um, B, this T-cell proliferation, so some of those babies who have thymic aplasia will occasionally show this massive proliferation of the um, small number of like baby T-cells resulting in this complete infiltration of end organs with oligoclonal peripheral T lymphocytes, mm-hmm. um, which this OMIN syndrome is a variant of SCID. So they have severe immunodeficiency, they have eosinophilia, and they um, can have um, lymphadenopathy, hepatosplenomegaly, and um, erythroderma. So that's not something that comes up very common, but it's just something to know. It's a variant really of SCID. But babies with DeGeorge can sometimes look like that if they have thymic, uh, complete thymic aplasia. Um, then this answer, uh, severe immunoglobulin deficiency. So interestingly, in babies who have complete aplasia, um, the um, absence of T cells cannot support adequate B cell proliferation. So it looks like patients with SCID. And in fact, patients with DeGeorge syndrome are often misdiagnosed on the newborn screening for SCID um, because what the test in the newborn screen is looking for for babies for SCID is they measure these T cell receptor excision circles or the T-Rex. T-Rex. T-Rex, like the dinosaur, yeah. which are which are fragments of DNA which are re- um, removed or excised during T cell receptor rearrangement in the thymus. Um, so that is the hallmark of, of SCID. But since patients with DeGeorge may have a hypoplastic thymus or an absent thymus, the T cells don't undergo their normal normal maturation process. So they have less T-Rex. So um, they may, again, come up um, as an abnormal screening on the newborn screening for SCID, even though they don't actually have SCID. So just a quick uh, refresh about 22Q11 um, and the CATCH22 syndromes. Um, So they have cardiac disease. um, That's CATCH, cardiac disease A, abnormal facies, T, thymic hypoplasia or aplasia, C, cleft palate, and H, hypocalcemia. Um, And then DeGeorge is just the most common. Okay? And 22Q11.2 is the most common chromosomal deletion syndrome. So if you're a trainee and you want to work up DeGeorge, it's a a reasonable place to start. (laughs) All right, your turn. Um, Okay, question 81 then. Mm -hmm. Daphna, you're caring for an infant with heterotaxy asplenia. As a precaution, you initiate uh, antibiotic prophylaxis to prevent infection by encapsulated organisms. Which of the following is not an encapsulated organism? Choice A, Haemophilus influenza. Choice B, Neisseria meningitides. Choice C, Pseudomonas aerogenosa, choice D, salmonella, typhi, choice E, 
streptococcus pneumonia? Okay. The only reason I got this question correct is because <laughs> I have some of your old notes and you use the mnemonic shins uh, for encapsulated <laughs> bacteria. So uh, S-H-I-N-S um, is, well, I'll let you, I'll let you explain, but it's shins. And the reason oh, go I for it. Remember- Go for it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so salmonella is one as uh, one of the S's H homophilus influenza um S H So it's S H lower I lower I yeah like, influenza homophilus like influenza, influenza. Uh-huh. N Neisseria and your second S again streptococcus or, or the salmonella and the reason I remember that it's for encapsulated organisms is I think of like shin guards for soccer players so it's like this hard uh, coating to protect your shins so like yeah. the encapsulated um, uh, out, outer coating um, for these bacteria. Yeah, that's exactly how I remember it to do. Growing up in Europe, soccer or football, as we like to call it, <laughs> uh, you have to have shin guards. Uh, and these look like a little capsule that you put on your shins. And uh, the same way that the, the encapsulated organisms are covered by this polysaccharide capsule to help them evade cell-mediated immune response, then the same way you're supposed to uh, protect your shins uh, from, from nasty tackles uh, with the, the guards. Yeah, good job. Okay. All right. Did we get to everything? Thank you for a week of infectious disease. And um, we have a great interview. We have, I think, another episode of Dr. Brodsky and Martin coming up tomorrow. And then we have a nice interview with um, Dr. Prem Fort, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Mm Mm-hmm who is uh, very active on social media, also known as the NICU doc. So uh, we hope you enjoy that as well. Daphne, I'll see you. um, I'll see you on Sunday. Sounds good. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphne and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICU Podcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.